The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Mike. And I am Jay. Jay, our last episode, you made me watch Star Trek, and I joked a lot that the only logical follow-up to that would be Knight Rider, because for all of those years waiting for Knight Rider to come on, I had to watch 10 minutes of all those Next Generation episodes. Yeah. We have very different approaches to our setups. Yours are thoughtful and articulate. Sometimes you write things out. I just kind of wing it. I'm more of the Brett Favre of the podcast world. But this week, sir, I come armed with the facts. The fact is that after 1982's premiere of Knight Rider, it became a smash success. The fact is that as a 41-year-old man, yeah, I have a Knight Rider vanity license plate. And the fact is that Knight Rider is the raddest show to have ever beamed itself out of the idiot box. But you didn't watch that. You watched a movie that came out five years later that nobody wanted, that nobody asked for, and that had your beloved Scotty Doohan <laughs> in, in a little role just for you. You, sir, watched Knight Rider 2000. Let's go ahead and roll the trailer. Cryogenic incarceration saves an estimated $1.5 billion per year while solving the problem of prison overcrowding and cruel conditions. The more things change, the more they stay the same. A complex criminal conspiracy is uncovered in the city of the future. The whole fabric of society is at risk. I'll do him too, so I'll be good! First you ban capital punishment, then you ban handguns from everyone, including your own police. We need help, Russ. We need help. Kicks back in a new century and a brand new adventure. Switch to virtual reality. With the latest technology and an old friend. Is that you, Michaels? Yeah. You look like crap. Well, so do you, pals. Now it's time for a new partner. Michael, kindly tell this obnoxious person to remove her hands from my wheels. If she has your missing chip implanted in her brain, we'll simply have to have it removed. David Hasselhoff and Edward Mulher return. One man can make a difference. With the car with an attitude. Night Rider 2000. Exclusively on CIC Video. Jason, you watched Night Rider 2000, and in doing so, you proved the central theme of television's greatest action drama that one man can make a difference. Tell me how you <laughs> fared with Knight Rider 2000. I did not fare well at all. I think that out of the movies that you've ever, in the history of our relationship, asked me to watch, <laughs> this is the one that I've hated the most. An all-timer? This is the all-time 
This is one of the all-time worst movies that I've ever watched, period, which is surprising given the talent that's involved with this thing because there are some quality actors who usually can do some good work. And I'm looking straight at you, Mitch Pileggi. Yeah. But in <laughs> but no, I, I mean, in this this thing is 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 just lazy, insipid garbage. So what you said in your setup here so eloquently is that this show was the zeitgeist for a little while, right? From 82 to 86, this show was everybody's big thing. In fact, it was so much so that I was recently watching Disney's reboot of Chippendale Rescue Rangers. It's a movie on Disney+. Plus. At the beginning, Chip meets Dale in elementary school, and Chip arrives with a Knight Rider lunchbox. Nice. The only reason that Knight Rider 2000 was made was to sell more lunchboxes. Five years to later. Somehow get, just to somehow get back to the lunchbox selling heyday. And I can tell you that this, again, is the laziest, shittiest approach that they could have taken to getting back to it. Look, I... I had to, I was not a big Knight Rider fan. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was kind of cool when I was a kid. Um, the car is very awesome looking, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, at Michael Knight is David Hasselhoff. I don't really know what to say about it, so I looked it up, right? Knight Rider 2000 takes place about a decade and change after the events of the television show. Let's talk about the television show real quick. It's about Michael Knight and his supercar kit, which stands for Knight Industries 2000. Indeed. Because that means something. And they battled crime in the mean streets of Southern California. Knight was apparently <laughs> some insane convoluted backstory involving a past life as a police officer. Yeah. And as an ex-Green Beret named Michael Long. Yeah, do you need me to explain who, this to you? Because I could tell you right off the top of my head, this is legend to me, sir. Are you serious? You know all this? Uh, yeah. Like he had a plate put in his head yeah. after a stint Mike, in Vietnam? Michael Long got shot in the face. They had to go through this whole plastic <laughs> surgery thing so that he could live this new life as Michael Knight. He came into the, uh, the, to the Knight Foundation. Devin brought him in. And he became yeah. this crime fighter in Southern California with the Knight Industry 2000. Yeah, voiced by William Daniels. I can tell you all about it. But the goal of this of this thing was like to give aid to the powerless or yeah, some shit. Like, that's right. And it and the most efficient way to do this was somehow to give Michael an indestructible car equipped with artificial intelligence. Well, what are you going to give him? Some stupid ass Airwolf helicopter? No, you're not. You're going to give him a car <laughs> with Bill Daniels' voice. I, I will have you know. That David Hasselhoff is no Jan Michael Vincent. You do realize <laughs> that my impression of you is mostly that you are Michael Knight, right? Like, if I was like, what was Santo like before you met him? I was like, no, I'm I don't MacGyver, know. you asshole. No, not even close. I was like, Santo's got a badass leather jacket. He's like making eyes at every lady up and down the freeway. Uh, in a heartbeat, you are Michael Knight to me. Prior, prior to us meeting, you are Michael Knight just out there in the world being the Hoff. Now that's just wonderful. You stick me in mothballs for nearly a decade, and then you sell off my parts like I'm inventory from Manny, Moe, and Jack. Ha <laughs> ha! It is wonderful to hear your voice. I wish I could say the same, Devin, but one of my auditory monitors must have landed in some kid's walkie-talkie. Is that you, Michael? Yeah. You look like crap. Well, so do you, pal. At least I have an excuse. You've obviously gone down the toilet since we split up, Michael. Get a life. Michael Knight is the most boring lead character 
I have ever come across, at least in Knight Rider 2000. This movie plays as if it was something that he did on a three-day stint between shooting Baywatch episodes. He just came on, he did a, a stare off into the middle distance for about 30 shots, and then the other 30 he looked sort of sad. I don't know if he was sad because he was even doing this movie or if that was the only thing that he could conjure. This, he is not acting in this film at all. He's just present-ish. Kit isn't even in, really in this movie at all. And there's the, car the real, is not there's even in the real this. heartbreaker, the Trans Am, the black T-top. This the is, black T-top and it goes not... back to your point of trying to sell more lunchboxes and merchandise. It's like, well, what if there's a whole new car that is a different car? Nobody wants that. We just, we got to talk about this. We have to talk about what this movie is about, okay? So this is basically a soft reboot that was posing as a pilot, mm -hmm. I think. I think that's really, they, there was some something going on in the background of this where the producers wanted to do like three television movies. They didn't want to sign on to do a series. And then they only ever made one terrible pseudo pilot yep. where they were going to transition to a new lead character. But basically it mixes politics into Knight Rider, which it's about like a weak sauce version of the year 2000 where cops are forced to enforce the law without guns and capital punishment is outlawed. So the criminals are cryogenically frozen to presumably be dealt with, I don't know, like later they're, or something. They're demolition manned. Yeah, that's exactly it, right. <laughs> so it, it all sets a backdrop for these crooked police who are looking to get their guns back. So they unfreeze a criminal that is not Wesley Snipes, <laughs> who then assassinates the mayor. And then somehow this criminal is promoted to like the ringleader of all the bad cops to get rid of anyone who might get away from their plan to get their guns back. And then we kind of cut away from all that to a gun fishing Michael Knight, who's <laughs> called upon by Devin Miles again to get the band back together. But the new head of the Knight Foundation is a total asshole named Maddock. And he junked Kit really for no reason. They diss the shit out of the car. I mean, it's nothing personal, Devin, but the car didn't exactly have fresh oil on the dipstick, if you know what I mean. And with the 4,000 on the way, it hardly seemed worth the price of storage. Yes, hardly. You let this guy actually do this. This guy happens to be your new boss, Mr. Knight. And I'd watch that attitude from now on. I assume you can repurchase the missing components. Most of them, I think. I, mean, I, I was surprised I could sell them at all, but I guess the research facilities found them okay. Shows how up-to-date they are. So they managed to scrounge up enough parts to place Kit's AI into Michael's hobby car, <laughs> which is like a 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air. Oh, no. But they're missing this key chip from Kit. And by coincidence, the chip has been implanted in the head of a female police officer named Sean McCormick. Somehow the writers expected people to embrace that cop as the new lead characters of a Knight Rider reboot. I see. Fattest nope <laughs> in the history of nopes. <laughs> yeah, that's a big fat no thank you. Here's why. The, Here's the why, car right? is in her head. <laughs> <laughs> she talks like, what's the guy's name? That William does Daniels. The, yeah, William Daniels. She talks like William Daniels. And has that same sarcasm. And in one of the only good scenes in the entire movie is her giving sass to Kit, who's giving her sass back. Is basically like Kit talking to Kit. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, 
I'll allow it. That's okay. <laughs> but otherwise, otherwise everything has been god-awful in this. You've been sitting here in this park for hours and nothing's coming back to you. You're just gonna have what? to... What? Put it out of my mind? Too late. Somebody already did. I'm on your side. The only side you're on is your own. What's that supposed to mean? Devin told me you were leaving as soon as the night for thousands finished. Michael, is that true? You never should have brought me back. We brought each other back, pal. So what am I supposed to do? Hope for another memory jolt or two? There's one possibility which I've been reluctant to mention. It could be extremely dangerous. Just tell me what it is. The human body is run by electric current, much like a computer, but only at a fraction of the voltage. Because of my chip being in your brain, I might be able to stimulate your hemispherical memory center and pipe it through my monitor. What, I'm supposed to stick my finger in the cigarette light or something? I could generate it from my overdrive shift lever. You said it was dangerous. If I don't calculate the precise electrical input, the odds are... Just a moment. 33.5% chance of permanent brain damage. Why does this movie suck so much? It's very easy. No cool as shit car doing crazy car stunts. None. There's almost nothing that happens. The Bel Air ends up in the drink at one point. And that's about all that happens. An even more pointless version of Michael Knight than on the original show. Michael, what did he do? He talked in his watch. That was about it? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's it. Right here, he barely does any of that. The focus is all on these bland as hell characters that, that really, I just offer you nothing to hold on to. The completely arbitrary death of Devin Miles. You know, Michael's father figure from the show. Yeah. And then, of course, do you remember Mobile Armored Strike Command? Mask? Mask? I sure do. Yes. That might have been what right? came on before Knight Rider in the morning. Before Knight Rider. <laughs> like the rerun in the morning. Syndicated. Yeah. Syndicated Knight Rider. Yeah. Mask always ended with like, and it, lots of shows ended this way, but I always think of Mask as being like the one where everything always ends with a ha, 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 ha. I mean, everybody's <laughs> laughing and throwing their heads back or whatever. This movie has a mask ending. <laughs> Everybody's like, ha, 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 ha. Michael drives away. Fuck. This movie sucked. Everything about this movie sucked. It was painful to watch. I had to watch it multiple times. Why? <laughs> because I had to make sure I understood how awful it was. I, part of me believed that it, maybe I fell asleep and dreamt how terrible it was. Uh, yeah. Because it was so fucking boring that I'm surprised I could stay awake to watch it. It was so blandly shot. It has one of the worst matte paintings in the history of all matte paintings oh. at the very beginning. To show this like giant cryo prison uh -huh, okay all right <laughs> but it's okay so they there's they're so cheap that they dethaw thomas watts at the beginning of the movie and they pull the guy out and there's liquid nitrogen flowing yeah. out and stuff like that right at the very end they put the bad guy that they've caught in the same unit <laughs> so that they didn't have to build two and then someone says huh Kind of ironic that we're putting him in the same one. Tried to pass it off as it was some sort of dramatic I, irony I or whatever. I meant to do that. <laughs> oh, it was so bad. Do you remember Miami Vice, right? I do. You remember that, Yeah, this right? was up against Miami Vice in its television days. That's right. And it's in the television heyday. What was it? It was like those were the two biggest yeah. shows that were on television. And Jan Hammer did the music for Miami Vice. So he's one of the most cool soundtracks ever, right? I remember... Growing up, I had this little Walkman, and I remember like sitting there listening to the the cool synthesizer of Jan Hammer. <laughs> you know, I just absolutely love that music. 
Jan Hammer did the music for this movie, and it sucks. Oh no! It's completely the wrong kind of music for the film. It's very, it's this lilting piano. It's everything is sad. Everything is 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 just so overly dramatic and Hasselhoff has zero in the way of acting chops he can't pull off anything here <laughs> he's just he's just again it's all middle distancing that's how i describe everything he does you know he's found the horizon somewhere 50 feet away from him <laughs> It's probably craft services is what he's looking at. He's, he's he's like, there's a sandwich and a cold beer just offset. And that's, that's where he wants to be. <laughs> so I have to ask the movie is Knight Rider 2000, a film made in 91 yeah. that posits yeah. what the super futuristic yeah. world of the year 2000 would be like. Sure. I, I have to hear what does Knight Rider 2000 think the year 2000 looked like? Apparently, the year 2000 to the writers of Knight Rider 2000 looked like a world in which actor James Doohan, who played Scotty on Star Trek, was senile and while making a bank withdrawal, gets accosted by the Knight Rider team in one of the stupidest scenes in all of history of all things trapped on cinema. Yeah. You know, or on film or whatever the hell this crap was shot on. 16 millimeter bitch cakes. <laughs> the usage of Doohan in this, it was like Doohan maybe was walking down the street and they had a camera and they were shooting a different scene and they just went, hey, Jimmy. And they just ran over and like got him, threw him on the car. And it was so fucking arbitrary. It made no sense whatsoever. All right, pal, you're under arrest. They set their phasers on stun, Captain. I don't like the looks of it. Michael. Shall I Mirandize him? Kit, it's Scotty. Who? Star Trek, you idiot. He's James Doohan, the actor who played Scotty in the original series and all ten movies. Don't tell me you're a closet Trekkie. The dilithium crystals are fading fast. I don't think I can hold them, Mr. Spock. Maddock, I'm very angry about this. You obviously substituted a bogus chip in my memory. I want my old chip back. Please, somebody beam me up. Scotty. Scotty. There was no real technological innovation. It was like bad computer graphics would light up your display of, you know, while you're driving, you know, kit or something like that. And it just said like smell-o-vision or something, I think, at one point. <laughs> yes, it did. It noted that the female police officer was wearing a particular scent because it had new olfactory sensors in, in in it so apparently our cars could smell us which is really unfortunate for any car i drive can you so. imagine what <laughs> david hasselhoff smelled like in 1991 <laughs> in 91 it wasn't good i think probably in like 82 83 it was probably very good oh but yeah by 91 it was probably just tanning lotion and desperation desperation yeah <laughs> there was one thing that i did like a lot about this i lived in san antonio texas when i was a child so i immediately recognized the tower of americas at the beginning of this from san antonio so i thought it was kind of cool that it was shot there um but that's the kind of thing that i was i was staring at the background in this movie like i couldn't even watch the characters because i didn't really care what anybody was doing they tried to reboot this thing over and over again with other tv movies and a new tv series 
And one, I guess, was even set in like some sort of Mad Max-like setting. So, uh, and, and, and that's fine because there was a budget and some new ideas at play that might have sparked fandom into overdrive and gotten back to Lunchbox Mania rather than doing what happened here and leaving everyone watching stuck in a miserable ditch. Mike, I want to put this thing in the rear view. I never want to think about it again. You are a rat bastard fink for making me watch this garbage. I'm just going to go ahead and pat my own back here. The sheer brilliance (laughs) of taking something that I love and finding the one definitive piece of shit and giving that to you because of the movie you gave to me. It was perfect. It was the same. In the first place. Same treatment. Man, I don't know. Same treatment. I don't know, Santo. Sometimes I feel like I'm playing chess while you're out there playing podcast checkers. <laughs> Well, Mike, after Knight Rider 2000, the only thing I can think to do is put my foot on the gas and get us the fuck out of here. But before (laughs) I do, we're going to have to talk about our bottom five cars. And I'll tell you what, Knight Rider 2000, we didn't even talk about the red sports car version that ended up being the kit, the cool car kit. Yeah, the lunchbox kit. Yeah, that did zero stunts, by the way, zero. Either one of those two cars would have easily ended up on my list. (laughs) But what about you? What what was your approach with this list? Well, I cheated a little bit in that I didn't get too hung up on it being a car. (laughs) There's a car, there's a truck. I didn't do any training. Sort of a, you know, modes of transportation, I decided. was fair enough. Fair enough. I also, maybe you chose otherwise, I decided to leave Christine off my list because (laughs) it just seemed like Christine was the logical choice here. Sure. I had a little bit of fun with it, I think, as we go through. And my number one is a ginormous cheat. The biggest cheat in the history of our bottom fives, but we'll get there. I'll start with my number five. Okay. We can agree that commuting for work sucks. Commuting on public transportation sucks harder. Commuting on a public bus must be the worst possible way to get around. (laughs) Talk about the the sights and the smells of public bus. I was once on a bus where a guy in uh, cutoff denim shorts and a Dallas Cowboys starter jacket spent the entire ride yelling on his phone about how his mom was a bitch for not letting him buy a $4,000 lap leopard. So uh, what's a lap leopard? I don't even fucking know. I don't know. I don't don't even know what that is. I don't know. But (laughs) how does public transportation get worse than that? I can tell you when it's 1994 Mm. and this happens. There's a bomb on your bus. That sucks. A bomb on the bus sucks. Based on the kind of characters he usually plays, I wouldn't want to eat a sandwich that was made by Dennis Hopper, let alone ride on a bus that he (laughs) fucked with, right? Like, everything about Dennis Hopper just creeps me right the hell out. Maybe it's a Blue Velvet thing. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. I I actually looked this up. I did a little research, Jay, because I care. I care. I did some research. (laughs) There are 2,320 buses in the Metro Los Angeles fleet. Mm. One of them had a bomb in the movie Speed, which means your chances of being on that bus are 0.043%. Wow. In fact, statistically, you are twice as likely to lose an appendage in a chainsaw accident than be on that bus. So it makes my list just for being a bus, basically, because buses suck so bad. (laughs) But also because it's a rolling death wagon. And lastly, because it means you'd be spending the day listening to Alan Ruck whine. (laughs) And honestly, 
I would rather the bus explodes than have to listen to Alan Ruckwine. So that's what it was about for me. Speed number five. Man, we might hear more about speed coming up in the future here. But with my number five, I've got none other than the invisible Aston Martin V12 Vanquish (laughs) from 2002's Die Another Day. You know, Roger Moore, who played Bond in the, what, 70s to 80s films, said about Die Another Day, I thought it just went too far. And that's from me, the first Bond in space. Invisible cars and dodgy CGI footage, please. (laughs) I don't think you can sum up this final outing for Pierce Brosnan's James Bond any better. (laughs) While The World Is Not Enough is arguably the worst of Brosnan's movies is 007, it was Die Another Day that stretched any and all credibility (laughs) with an invisible fucking car. (laughs) This thing basically looked like a predator in car form (laughs) with some hilariously glitchy looking technology that I guess was supposed to portray the digital nature of its cloaking. (laughs) But I am telling you not to keep invoking Star Trek, but it did such a better cloaking. Like it was way cooler with its color ripples and and it's just simple dissolve. This thing looked like a scratch DVD. (laughs) Oh, no. Even more ridiculous was the fact that the car's advantage was rendered thoroughly useless rather quickly in the most potent action scene of the movie, which pitted Bond against a villain in a Jaguar XKR equipped with thermal sensors that could see the Aston Martin. (laughs) So so after shooting the hell out of it with insane-looking Gatling guns that just popped out of the hood of the Jaguar, the no longer invisible Aston Martin became, you know, just your typical sports car carrying more weaponry than most F-15s. <laughs> All of it is absurd with that idiotic car tech, as well as with Madonna in a small role as a fencing instructor, <laughs> a, a, a stint that somehow won her a Razzie for her effort. Oh, wow. Can you imagine winning a Razzie for a fucking cameo? No, I, that's, that's harsh. <laughs> but I, I would say that fair, Faring Better, in my opinion, is her song for the movie. But you know what? Most lists rank it among the worst in the franchise. So what the hell do I know? Well, you're going to make apologies for Madonna till the day you die. (laughs) I don't remember because all I'm envisioning is like you can't see the car, but Bond is sitting. So like you just see Bond (laughs) like in a sitting position floating two feet off the ground. Floating around. I know that's not how it worked, but it's way funnier if you imagine. That was like like Wonder Woman in her invisible jet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been so much better. Well, I like that we're both already cheating here because basically your number five was like my, your pick was a car that you can't even see. It's not even there. So that's good. <laughs> it's not even that's there. solid stuff. My number four uh, is Matilda the Hun's buzz bomb from Death Race 2000. Oh yeah, for sure. In 1975. <laughs> Jay, the buzz bomb was a Volkswagen Carmen Ghia convertible that was modified in this movie to look like the Nazi V1 flying <laughs> bomb. There was a Nazi car in this movie. The Nazis <laughs> called it the Flying Vengeance, and it was basically this early version of a cruise missile that was manufactured with slave labor and dropped on British cities. So, Jesus. of course, Roger Corman, <laughs> producer and director Paul Bartel, decided it was... Totally cool to include it as a stupid as fuck race car comedy. Why is there a Nazi car? They call her Matilda the Swastika Sweetheart. Unfortunately, in our current time, 
this movie that was intended to be deeply stupid satire seems horrifyingly accurate. I know. I know. But Matilda's buzz bomb. And I have to say, there's a lot to choose from in Death Race 2000 because... You'll remember that David Carradine drives like a an alligator, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's filled with ridiculousness, yeah. and it's high camp intended as high camp. Yep. And you are one hundred percent correct when you say that this is something that I would I would half expect to see on my commute to work tomorrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. With no, with not even a shred of irony even attached to it, this would be something I would see. But I don't want that to turn people off from Death Race 2000 because it's no, such a fun it's flick. wonderfully, it's wonderfully fun. It's such a goofy, yeah. but yeah. But that, yeah, <laughs> but the Nazi, the Nazi race car, that's a pretty, pretty solid bottom five for me. Well, my number four comes from, let me describe it to you first <laughs> and see if you get it. Okay, ready? Wood paneling. Yeah, I think I know what we're talking about. The color is metallic P. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> And there were eight headlights. Eight. Eight of them. <laughs> this would, of course, be the Wagon Queen Family Truckster, mm-hmm. which is a modified Ford LTD Country Squire. It was driven by none other than Clark W. Griswold from the 1983 film National Lampoon's Vacation. Probably the worst thing about this car is what happens inside it. Like, dear old Aunt Edna just dying while riding in the back scene <laughs> between the Griswold children, Rusty and Audrey. But I would say that a close runner-up would be when Clark forgets to untie Edna's dog, Dinky, from the bumper and then drives across several states before a cop pulls him over with the severed leash behind him. Poor little guy, probably kept up for the first quarter mile or so. Neither of those are really so much the car's fault as much as things that happen in it and around it. But when good old Eugene Levy, playing the sleaziest of car salesmen, proclaims, If you think you hate it now, wait until you drive it. (laughs) You do start to wonder if maybe all this bad luck might have somehow been brought on by the family truckster. It's such a good pick. You know, I almost want to get into it with you a little bit about this pick because I thought about the truckster myself. And at the end of the day, I kind of came away thinking like, you know what? The truckster's kind of (laughs) kick-ass. Oh, no, it's not. It's so ugly. But you're not wrong. That that scene with <laughs> Eugene Levy as the car salesman giving Clark the car that he didn't want and Clark just having to roll over and take it is like... It, it's awful. Oh, it's so good. And, and his car is being destroyed yeah. like yeah. while he's being dicked around. There's a reading of this movie where it's all the car's fault. There, oh, <laughs> sure, yeah. I almost... <laughs> see, after I thought about the truckster, I actually... I almost went right by it and I wanted to go with Cousin Eddie's RV... Oh, you know? that would have been fun too. Yeah, for sure. One of my favorite oh. lines, don't you go falling in love with it, Clark, because I'm taking it with me when I leave here in a month. <laughs> month, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there something weird, like a detail that was dropped where the inside of it was all covered in like, what did well, he say? There was there was when they first roll in and, and like they talk about the kids having all the rubber sheets. Yes. And Eddie wants the kids to sleep in the house so that he and the little lady can have some time alone because they've been on the road a while. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it all just came together there. Maybe that's There's what it a was. weird rubber sheet thing. Yeah. Oh, it's a good pick, Jay. I'm glad that we managed to get National Lampoon in there because between the family truckster and Cousin Eddie's RV, there's there's some really good choices <laughs> there's there. something there. I'm glad you got it in there. <laughs> Speaking of good choices, my number three, like I said, I opted to leave Christine off my list, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that the king of horror isn't going to be represented here because I'm going with... <laughs> All of the trucks and cars 
from 1986's <laughs> Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, that's right. Yep. King's first and gloriously last attempt at directing a film. Man, that guy can write. He cannot direct a picture. <laughs> I couldn't really choose just one vehicle out of the bunch. You know, the Green Goblin truck, it's the iconic one because it's got the big Green Goblin face. But really, an entire fleet of bloodthirsty big rigs (laughs) that are being controlled by (laughs) a comet or whatever the fuck was happening in that movie. Sure. That makes my list. Yeah. So I opted to leave Christine off the list, but King is still so fucking prolific that there's still material that works for this list for me it's just the whole fleet that movie is that's a tough watch and if you include some of his books he's even got from a buick 8 as well or like the car that was driven in the dark half which had the bumper sticker high tone son of a bitch on it yeah he definitely has a thing for cars he does, there's no absolutely. question yep that may mean something on my list as well oh good and it's not christine oh so wow I'll leave it okay at that. that's great so. yeah because <laughs> i think christine is one of those i think it gets lost a little bit the book just because of some of the other really major work around it, but I love that novel. So it's a really good book. It's a very, very cool movie. Yeah, I actually is. love Carpenter's version of it. And while maybe we're not mentioning Christine and maybe I didn't use maximum overdrive, I did repeat something else. And that would be my number three, which also was the bus from speed. All right. So I too decided that technically it wasn't a car. Yeah. You know, but I had, it had to make the list for me because speed to buses is like Jaws to beaches for most people. Yeah. I don't want to step onto one for fear that somehow that wisecracking psychopath with a penchant for pop quizzes might have rigged it with a bomb that'll detonate unless the bus stays above 50 miles an hour. This movie is super fun, and Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock are cast perfectly as protagonists. They got plenty of chemistry. But the idea of being on a speeding bus that cannot slow down... Never mind demolishing everything on the highway that might get in your way. Just the motion sickness and the heat of it all. (laughs) Just the idea of being trapped on a public bus. (laughs) Right, exactly. With the public. Everyone on this bus looks like they've been making Aeropostale rompers in Sri Lanka. (laughs) And it's a city bus. Like you kept saying, it's a city bus. There's no toilet. You're going to be on this thing for hours, scared out of your gourd with breakfast playing bongos in your lower intestines. There's no, There's no sign of relief in sight. Even the hostages in Air Force One had bathrooms. You know, I never really thought about the potty situation. You're totally right. Oh, man, it's brutal. I guess that's why it was five on my list, but it made it a little further up yours because... Way up mine. I'm never going to watch cause... Speed the same way again. I never even considered the bathroom situation. It adds a layer of terror to that movie I never even considered. It's just one of the most frightening and uncomfortable situations in cinema history. Well, speaking of frightening cinema, were it not for how psyched I am for my upcoming number one pick, this one would easily top my list. Easy. No problem. Mm. At number two, I'm going with the on-screen duo of Skids and Mudflap from Transformers (laughs) Revenge of the Fallen. Oh, yeah. Jake. They each transform Uh. into one half of an ice cream truck. And as fucking dumb as that is, it's not even the problem. The problem is that Skids and Mudflap are some of the most outrageously racist bullshit that has ever landed in a major studio picture. I am beside myself that this made it into a major release. They jive talk. One of them has a gold tooth 
It's like yeah. it's like Transformers, Amos and Andy. Only it was 2009. Yeah. Everyone should have known better. Yeah. There is no need for a robot minstrel show in a movie. And only Michael Bay sucks hard enough that he could actually <laughs> give us one. To make matters worse, Skids was voiced by Tom Kenny, who, of course, is best known as being the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants and mm. is, in fact, possibly history's whitest guy. <laughs> so, I was just saying that. Yeah, yeah I so was just thinking that. This is it's Jar Jar Binks all over again. It's oh, it's But Ahmad Best was was actually oh, Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. And he, you know, he was a gifted dancer and performer, was African American, I think had a hand a little bit in the caricature of it. This what happened in Transformers was inexcusable. It is blackface. It's blackface. It's robot blackface. Yeah. It's unreal. Yeah. I could talk about it all day. A tentpole film, like a major movie. Yeah, I know. When you I think know. about and when was... you think about the kind of thing that gets run out of Hollywood today, and rightfully so. I know. The fact that this was in a Transformers movie in 2009. I know. Is amazing to me. Is it the second or the third Transformers movie? Like, which one is it? I couldn't possibly tell you. You don't even know? I know that. I, I think we did an episode <laughs> of Revenge of the one, Fallen. Right? The Mr. The Fallen is like the old robot that actually farts a parachute. Oh, he was going to be on my list because he's like, for some reason, the robot gets old. And when he gets angry, he yells and farts and a parachute shoots out of Jesus his robot Christ. ass, which doesn't make any sense. And yet is less offensive than these two doing blackface. Can you I mean, imagine just, that yeah. the movie offered something worse than a robot that farts a parachute? <laughs> Unreal. That's a hell of a pick and definitely one that belongs on the list for very different reasons. Mm. So I like it. My number two is a very, very obvious choice. Instead of Christine, I included The Car mm. from 1977. This is a 1971 Lincoln Continental Mark III. And you know, any vehicle that's the title character in a movie that begins with a quote from the Church of Satan founder, Anton LaVey, has got to make it high on this list. The movie starts with the quote, O great brothers of the night, who rideth upon the hot winds of hell, who dwelleth in the devil's lair, move and appear. Okay, that's cool as fuck. That is cool <laughs> as fuck. And you know what? There's some fun shit in this incredibly stupid movie <laughs> for which by the way LaVey was also credited as a technical advisor oh swell so go figure but this is a killer car flick from 1977 it stars a pre-amityville James Brolin and a pre-robocop Ronnie Cox uh the car probably seems like an unlikely choice as there are better killer vehicle movies such as 1971's Duel and 1983's Christine but if you're talking about bottom five cars list mm. how can you not include one that slams a right turn so hard that it jackknifes itself into several pursuing cop cars <laughs> or this same one that crashes through a high school marching band practice or one where as revenge for being taunted crashes full speed through the front of a house and takes out the hero's lady friend <laughs> Oh, man. The car is an awkwardly paced, idiotically plotted, and poorly acted mess of a movie <laughs> with some really lousy special effects, but it's got a few things going for it. One, Brolin's magnificent beard. Two, Cox's <laughs> magnificent hair. And three, some pretty fun car stunts. You know what? 
Knight Rider 2000 could have used a lot of this, right? When you see the vehicle go up in a ball of demonic flame, it only makes sense that somehow it winds up cruising the mean streets of late 1970s Los Angeles looking for fresh victims <laughs> at the very end. All right. Fun facts about this flick before we, we move on. Yeah, please, because I've never seen it. Oh, man, it's, it's fun. But Guillermo de Toro is such a genuine fan of the movie that he owns a replica of the car. Whoa. Yeah. And, and this is truly insane. 42 years later, in 2019, a sequel was made called The Car, Road to Revenge, that actually has Ronnie Cox reprising his role from the original. Is that a record for, like, times between two movies? That's a fair question. It, 40, it must 42 be. years. It's pretty close. That's older than you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get over it. Wow. So, yeah, number two, the car. Good times. You got to see it. If you haven't seen it, you have to watch it. It's absolutely shithouse nuts. Well, the cool thing about a movie like that is it came from a time when the thing that made those car movies fun is that it was still practical effects. So things were blowing <laughs> up. Things were smashing. I think that all those car movies from that you know, 70s and 80s period are so much more exciting to me and so much more fun to watch than you know, whatever Fast and the For Furious sure. kind yeah. of thing is going on now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Evil has visited the Earth in many forms. Now it returns as the car. There was no driver in the car. That sounds great. It's, yeah, in a cornucopia of killer car movies, it's good to have somebody tell me where to start. So I'm, I'm going <laughs> to look forward to catch up with that one. My number one is an absolute total cheat, and I'm not even sorry about it. I'm not even, I'm not going to apologize, and I'm not, I'm not sorry at all. It's actually a play. No, my, my pick <laughs> is a car that was never actually in a movie. Not once. What? Never. It wasn't in a movie, which I realize is a weird flex for a movie podcast, but I think I'm going to win you and the audience over with this one because it is perhaps the most infamous car in Hollywood history. It robbed us of an untold number of amazing performances. I'm going with James Dean's 1955 oh Porsche 550 <laughs> Spider, the car that killed James Dean. Okay. Of course. Most cinephiles know the story, right? Dean, he just bought the car a few weeks earlier. It was nicknamed the Little Bastard. And while barreling down the highway in California, he collided with an oncoming vehicle and died instantly. This was when we were robbed of the star he was about to be. Alec Guinness, uh, famously, there's this kind of Hollywood legend. Alec Guinness apparently told him that he'd be dead in a week driving that little car around. There's a ton of mm. urban legends about the car being cursed and all the bad things that happened with it after the accident. There was another driver that died in a 550 uh, Spider that had salvaged parts from James Dean's car. But the 550 mm. was a notoriously dangerous car it was made out of aluminum it was so low to the ground Jeez. that you could almost swing a baseball bat over it as it went by you it's that tiny man you know wow i i don't i don't believe in curses but i do believe that despite not ever appearing on screen it deserves a spot on my list that's it i'm not gonna argue that at all i think that's a great pick we got robbed of james dean yeah i mean 
pure and simple. That's my bottom fiveest. I would love to have seen the fat old James Dean and the shit that he would have mm-hmm. come up with in his later years, Marlon yeah, Brando style. Absolutely. Maybe he would have been the father of Superman Jarrell. I mean, like <laughs> it's possible. You never know. Probably would have been a much better movie. Well, my number one, we're going to Stephen King land. And you know what? It, immediately when it was decided when we were doing bottom five cars, I knew my number one, the yellow Ford Pinto in which a mother and her young son spend most of a movie trapped in by a rabid dog named Cujo. Fucking terrifying. I don't know if there's ever been a scenario more horrible and upsetting than the one cooked up by Stephen King for this story, but having a snarling, bloody, frothing St. Bernard maniacally looking to sink its teeth into two cowering souls in a rusty, broken-down sweltering, airless, and tiny shitbox that seems barely built well enough to sustain a slight breeze? Pure nightmare fuel. I think this is one of the books King claims he doesn't remember writing Mm. due to his um, struggles with alcoholism in the early 80s. But it is so effective. It's claustrophobic and extremely suspenseful with fantastic performances by D. Wallace Stone and Danny Pintaro as the mom and son. Lewis Teague's adaptation is unrelenting for most of its runtime, but pulls back at the very end from King's full-on merciless original ending Mm. in which the son dies. I tell you, this is the worst car in anything ever. This is why you are the best host of Film Jitsu. This is why (laughs) you are better and smarter than me, because you know what? A million times over, if you asked, I would say, oh, yeah, Cujo, it's that dog movie. It's that dog movie. But you're right. Oh, it's all about it's that car. car. The, and you know is. what? It never even occurred to me. It never even occurred to me. And of course, yeah. of course, you're right. Yeah. The car's broken down. They're trapped in it. It saves them to some extent, but it's slowly killing them in the book. What kills the boy? Not the dog. Sunstroke and dehydration from being trapped in the fucking Pinto. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's such a good pick. Well, finally, Mike, we're putting it in high gear now. We're stepping away from the worst and going to the best. We're going to offer up some staff picks. What do you got for us this show? What do you got for us? I wanted to do something fun, something a little schmaltzy. Mm. You know, I was thinking about Knight Rider in that late 80s (laughs) kind of time period. What are some of the things that I really enjoy? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to share a movie that I watched recently with my best friend a movie he had never seen before something that i know you love i'm going with 1985's fright night directed by tom Hmm. holland i love this movie yeah yep i decided maybe a Uh. horror comedy again it's a movie about a kid who trying to get the girl not really paying enough attention to the girl (laughs) because he's obsessed with his new neighbor jerry dandridge who just might, in fact, definitely be a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) How about that scene when Chris Sarandon, as Jerry Dandridge, is seducing the woman right in front of the window Uh while the kid is watching? Yeah. Oh, my God. The music by Brad Fidel in that moment. Yeah, I do love this movie, and I am with you 100%, but my God, Mike. I know. it's That's a great scene. It, and that that's the fun thing about this movie is it's kind of all over the place in that oh, yeah. sometimes it is slapstick and, and silly. Mm-hmm. It becomes almost mm-hmm. the burbs at a certain point, 
And then you have yeah. what is almost a softcore scene in that window. <laughs> yeah. And one of my favorite parts, I guess, is the whole implication is that Jerry Dandridge, the way that he's going to really finish Charlie off, it's not about sucking his blood or turning him into a vampire. The real threat here is Jerry's like, I'm going to fuck yeah, your mom. Right? Look, Charlie, there's a lot of things I could do here. But I'm going to start by fucking your mom. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Which is a, so good. a pretty big power play for a vampire. <laughs> Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent is so much fun. There's just a lot to like about this movie. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Stephen Jeffries as Evil Ed. Oh, so good. 976 Evils, Stephen Jeffries. Oh. You and I both know that Hollywood wasn't kind to Stephen Jeffries. No. Do you remember the name of the adult film that he is perhaps most well known for? No, I don't. I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it's Latin Crotch Rockets was the name. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. That's rough. Things didn't turn out great for Stephen Jeffries, I don't think. But Fright Night is such a fun movie. Tom Holland is a guy who. He makes these horror movies that are a little uneven. You know, his career is a little bit all over the place. But when he gets it right, he gets it right. And for me, yeah, for sure. Fright Night hits all of the things that I want in a movie. It can be fun. It can be a little scary. It can be suspenseful. It's almost 1985, the movie for me. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's the one that I'm going to recommend to our listeners this week. If you just want to have fun, you want to just have a laugh, Fright Night is the movie for you. Well, my staff pick this week is Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, directed by Sam Raimi. It's a wonderful return to form for that director, who was most known, of course, for the Evil Dead series. This movie seems to act not only as a sequel to the deeply, deeply inferior Doctor Strange, which I found almost unwatchable, honestly. It was boring. It was confusing. And despite how like magnetic Benedict Cumberpatch really is as this character, it knew nothing. It had no idea what to do with him or the mysticism or any of it. Oddly enough, they kind of figured out the Doctor Strange character in subsequent Marvel movies sure. and minor roles. Yeah. And now finally he gets the treatment that he deserves. So it acts as a sequel, of course, to Doctor Strange. But for me, it also acts as an a really great sequel to the incredibly moving Marvel TV show WandaVision, which I honestly cannot recommend enough. And then just to top it off, I swear to God, this movie could act as a sequel to Raimi's Army of Darkness or maybe even like Evil Dead 2, maybe even more so. Forget that Army of Darkness happened and we'll just move to the multiverse of madness yeah. because there is so much Raimi here. It's like the rest of his career didn't happen and he somehow got handed 150 to $175 million to make Evil Dead 3. <laughs> like, you got bonkers Raimi cam shots. You got the snap zooms, the comically wacky POV shots with like skeleton hands, like batting characters, you know? Yeah. Um, laughing furniture. You've got the stretch of vision. All of it is here. Even some of the tricks that were employed by the Daniels and Everywhere, Everything, All at Once, which is another one of my recent staff picks, you know, some of the visual gags that were in their movie are also in the Multiverse of Madness, which just shows, you know, when you're working with multiverse stuff, I guess there's only so much you could do, which yeah. is weird it's... considering it's infinite, but yeah. whatever. Raimi goes fucking bonkers with this movie and yet manages to 
nail the WandaVision heart mm. of the story. And you once again get a quote unquote villain who you really, really care about. The Scarlet Witch is a fantastic character. Elizabeth Olsen is a revelation in these Marvel movies to show what real acting can be. I sound ridiculous. I'm talking about a comic book movie, but I am telling you, Raimi elevates this just like he did when he did the Spider-Man series. Mm -hmm. This is a really great movie. Even Danny Elfman, the film score guru and ex new waver who he's experiencing a, like a weird resurgence after just randomly appearing at Coachella Oh. In 2022, even he seemed to get some of his movie scoring mojo back after doing like years worth of just kind of forgettable movie scores. Here, he's really employing some nifty instrumentation, including a wailing 80s hair metal guitar that just <laughs> strikes up at random intervals throughout the movie. I really, really liked the artistry of this, the sort of brazen wackiness of it that really marries well with the universe. I have to say that I give Marvel and Kevin Feige the credit for letting their directors run and do some interesting stuff. It seems like a separate tactic has been employed with Star Wars. It sounded like they were sort of going that way when they let Ryan Johnson do The Last Jedi. It seemed like they were really moving in that kind of direction. You know, Abrams delivers the popcorn fare. Ryan Johnson comes in and does this really subversive take on everything re really resets everything. And then of course they got scared and ran back. Here is the right way to do it. Serve something up. That's really kooky, really crazy, really funky, have it anchored by a, a very good heart and then allow the audience to really revel in the artistry, the uniqueness of somebody working at the top of his powers. Honestly, Sam Raimi is back and that was a great fucking movie. That's exciting to hear because I haven't yet caught up with this particular movie, but I'm hearing a lot of this Sam Raimi is back stuff. Mm -hmm. And for guys like you and I that have been Sam Raimi fans for a <laughs> long time, it's exciting to hear that there's a, another Raimi movie. And I think if we take a second and really stop and think about it, you mentioned those Spider-Man movies. The mm -hmm. thing that made those Spider-Man movies different was that it's a story about a girl and the, the Spider-Man movies get that it's about the relationships between the people and the characters, not all the whiz bang stuff. That's important right. too. Raimi kind of gets that a movie has to have a core and have a heart and then you can do all that craziness around it. And so to mm -hmm. hear you say that all of those sort of Sam Raimi waypoints are present in the movie is awesome to hear. I can't wait to catch up with it because it sounds like, I don't think since Drag Me to Hell, which is a movie that I can't believe is sure. not a staff pick of mine yet, <laughs> the day will come. I think we've been waiting for a real return to Sam Raimi's form and, and that's exciting to hear. Mm -hmm. And also to hear you speak so highly of a, a Marvel movie. That's great. <laughs> that tells me something. <laughs> Mike, what do you get when you put Bill Murray Matthew McConaughey and Janine Garofalo as leads with an excellent cast of supporting actors, including Keith David, Pat Hingle, and Jeremy Piven. Is it the latest Wes Anderson film? Am I finally exploiting your frustration with the director's wee preciousness and overly meticulous set design on this show? No. In fact, this movie 
has an even more fascinating pedigree than any of Anderson's flicks, as its story was by Roy Blunt Jr., the screenwriter of Jonathan Demme's much-loved Married to the Mob, and it was directed by Howard Franklin, one of the screenwriters of the critically praised Umberto Eco adaptation In the Name of the Rose, starring Sean Connery. And with director of photography Elliot Davis from Soderbergh's Out of Sight, have I forgotten what podcast this is, Mike? No, <laughs> because this movie is a fucking horrid relic from the mid-90s career that Murray no doubt wants to forget. Mike, for our next episode, you'll be watching 1996's Larger Than Life, which I'll just describe as Midnight Run, but with Dumbo replacing Charles Grodin. <laughs> and the only way to honor that synopsis is by partnering your review with our bottom five sidekicks. Oh man, larger than life. You know a movie is bad when it has <laughs> Bill Murray and I still won't watch it. <laughs> Bill Murray and an elephant. You know that I hate animal movies, right? This is part of it for me. Horse movies, I don't give a shit about horses. Black Beauty or whatever that Spielberg one was. I just like, I don't give a shit what happens to horses. Noted. It's not that I don't love animals. I see biscuit. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Do not see biscuit. But when there's a movie with Bill Murray and it's enough on its face for me to be like, nope, I'm pass. I think if I were to take a look at Bill Murray's filmography, this could potentially be the only thing he's in that I've never watched. <laughs> this movie was so off my radar that I was convinced he was in Operation Dumbo Drop. Like, I legitimately had conflated two movies and didn't realize that Bill Murray wasn't in Operation Dumbo Drop until I went to look up Operation Dumbo Drop and found out that there was, in fact, another elephant movie <laughs> with Bill Murray in it. So he's not in Operation Dumbo Drop. <laughs> no, he's not in Operation I guess I would have Dumbo assumed Drop. these were the same movies, too. Who is in? Is that Ray Liotta in that one? Jesus. Yes, Ray Liotta and Dennis Leary. I, oh, and my then, God. I might have. Trust me, man. I, I almost sent it. Yeah, I might be coming out on top here with Larger Than Life. I feel like maybe I dodged <laughs> you, you a stupid be. elephant bullet. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Who's the sidekick in the movie? Is it the elephant? It's hard to say, really, right? I don't, I've never seen it. I'm asking you. Neither have I. I have no idea. <laughs> I thought it was Operation Dumbo Drop. How the fuck do I know? <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we're going to find out because I'm going to have to dig in and give it a try. On the one hand, I feel like, okay, Santo just gave me a Bill Murray movie. Like, how bad yeah, could right? my fate yeah. be? This could be a hidden gem. This could be a diamond in the rough. I'm going to try and stay positive and go into this wanting to like it. Good luck. 11% at Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I'm going to project into the future. I'm going to I'm going to 2000 my own Night Rider here and tell you that probably my review is like, well, Bill Murray's a really funny guy, but this is a real shit movie. So everybody get ready for probably that. Larger than life. That sounds good to me. I'm up for the task. I never thought a time would come when I wasn't excited to watch a Bill Murray movie, but here we are. So let's give this a whirl. I hope that all of our listeners will take a second to maybe drop us a line. Let us know who their bottom five sidekicks are. Am I? Wait, am I? You're, am, am I the sidekick? Are you the, my sidekick? I'm the sidekick? Yeah, nah, is that? You're the sidekick. Is that how? Oh, okay. This is what we need to do. Twitter poll. <laughs> let's get let's get that going. Who's the sidekick? On Film Jitsu, who's the sidekick? Is it me? Is it you? <laughs> I don't think I want to know the answer to the question. I'm already regretting having asked it, but this is a podcast full of regret. And so in the spirit of regret, 
I hope everybody will come back and join us next time when I will be reviewing Larger Than Life. As always, we have been your hosts. I am Mike. And I am Jay. We'll We'll see see you you next time. Shatner on one hand and Hasselhoff in the other. And that sounds like some sort of weird sexual thing. <laughs>